Where can you find more opportunities to lead, even if you're brand new? What is emotional labor? Why does it matter? And what is the one thing that you must do if you want to build influence with others? On today's show, I speak with Dina Denham-Smith. She's an executive coach and author of an upcoming book on science-backed principles for effective modern leadership. Today, we talk about why leadership is so much more than your title, what you need to do to bond with your team and develop authenticity, and why deeper connections drive better outcomes. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome to Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Papp, and for the last decade plus, I've been working with innovators and leaders inspire others to take action. My goal with this podcast is to give you practical, tactical advice that you can use now. Whether you're scaling a company, leading a new team, or advocating for meaningful change, this show is designed to help you make a positive impact with those who count. So let's learn together and have some fun along the way. Let's get to it. I am so delighted to have my guest today. Her name is Dina Denham-Smith, and she has Cognitas Consulting. Did I get that right, Dina? You sure did. Okay, good. Whew, one thing off, <laughs> off the list. So Dina has worked in many rapidly scaling environments, both as a leader and an executive coach. Some clients include, oh, some small companies like Dropbox, Lyft, DocuSign, Kite, Stripe, and many other private equity-backed startups and some biotechs as well. She just signed a book contract with Oxford University Press, applause. And this book, I cannot wait to read, is going to translate cutting edge science into practical strategies for leaders to address the modern work world's uncertainties and increased emotional demands. We're gonna get into that. She writes for Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Forbes, and you can find everything at Dina D. Smith, that's D-I-N-A, letter D, smith.com. Welcome to Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast, Dina. Hello, thank you for the invitation to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you. There is a lot to dive into, so congratulations on the book deal, and you have excellent articles. If you're listening to this, I encourage you to look at her site. But one of the first things I want to get into is this concept of leadership and the emotional components of it. How do you define leadership or how do you think of leadership? You know, I think about leadership as um, it's it's a title, um, but I think of it more as a stance. Um, and it's really that willingness to put other people, the greater good and the business ahead of your any of your own personal agendas. And so, you know, I think when you do those things, the results follow. How do you start to become a leader if you don't know where to begin? Yeah, I would say like, look for the voids, right? Look, there's always voids, you know, um, a project that's withering on the vine and needs someone mm. to take charge of it. Um, a colleague who maybe is having a hard time in some way, performance or otherwise, just see how you can step into places where you can start to flex some of these skills of leadership. Right? So there, there, I think there's always opportunity. You don't need to be, a, uh, to use your word, Stuart, anointed um, to start to flex leadership skills. I love that phrase, look for the voids or, or you know, find the voids. 
And one of the things I encourage anyone to do is when you're new, raise your hand to be the you know, chief note taker in a meeting or, you know, because I say another way of thinking about note taking is not administrative, but you're the knowledge keeper mm -hmm. that gives you permission to summarize, to, uh, to echo back what you're hearing, to share with others, to be in contact mm -hmm. with them for clarification. And while it's not an exciting role, it's an incredibly valuable one and one that people don't typically raise their hand for. Can mm -hmm. someone be too vulnerable at work. I mean, we want people who show empathy, they mm -hmm. sympathize. Um, is there such a thing? Yeah, it's, it's actually a great question. And I would say, yes, there is a place where if you're too vulnerable, especially in a leadership position, where unfortunately, you can still lose credibility. Um, and, and and that's that's this authenticity paradox where, you know, we want our leaders to be authentic, right? Like bring your whole self to work, all of that. But then sometimes when people do that, you know, others lose faith in them. You know, this last article that I wrote, you don't get to own your title when you when you publish for HBR. And so my proposed title was walking the authenticity tightrope as as a leader, because you do. Um, really have to balance um both of these forces um and it's just it's just yet one more way that there's like these invisible tax on leaders um and so i hope as we continue sort of evolving um that there's more and more space for for um leaders especially to not have to pretend to be superhuman um but there is still, there's still a little bit of that today. We've come a long way, but I think there's still more room before yeah. a leader can say, I'm really super unsure of myself here. Right. And there won't be a ripple effect. So it, it's interesting. I'm thinking of this tightrope where if you toggle too far in one way where you're being vulnerable and, and authentic, maybe you crumble and people think, is this someone I want to follow? On the flip side, if you're too stoic and reserved and you don't yeah. show an emotional component, it's there's a professor at Brigham and Young University who's written a bunch on this concept of humble narcissism. <laughs> and when I first heard that term, have you heard that before? I, I've, I've heard all sorts of things come after humble, but not narcissism yet. When I read the article and when I understood it, it was sort of toggling between having the humility to know that you don't know everything and you can't, mm -hmm. but also having the self-confidence to know that this is the direction we're going to choose. Mm -hmm. Unpack that for me in your lens between toggling between those worlds. And then I also want to understand sequence of toggling. You know, do you show strength <laughs> first, then vulnerability? But Right. Let's talk about toggling those two and sequence, Dina. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a broader um, lens here, which is leaders need to be constantly um, balancing what we might call polarities. So mm. these are two things that are seemingly in opposition of each other, but both are necessary. And so it is a matter of that balance. So if you think about... Um, humility and confidence, right? Yeah. Or task and relationship, 
Mm-hmm. You know, individual work, teamwork. Like there's a lot of things where, um, especially in leadership positions, they need to be balancing these things that, you, you know, you're not solving for one or the other. You actually right. need both. Um, and so I would say that same thing is is true with leaders. Um, you do need to be authentic primarily, but you also need to manage yourself um, and always be thinking about um, what what is going to be the impact of this. So let's say that there's a new manager who mm-hmm. has a chance to address the team and they want to show some you know, vulnerability or authenticity by sharing some personal or sharing yeah. some professional challenges. Is there a best practice in, in first indicating strength and courage of convictions and then indicating, you know, where someone is unsure or showing some uncertainty and then bringing it back? In general, I say like lead with warmth. Um, mm. We know from in, like all of the research on influence that like yeah. ultimately, if you're going to lead with something, lead, lead with that. Um, some amount of strength is also necessary, right? Like when you have to make the hard calls, um, right. when you have to do things that um, I, there, there's a, they're called necessary evils and leaders need right. to deal with a lot of them, like firing someone who's not performing conducting layoffs, all of that. Um, And, and there is strength necessary for doing those things. You can still do them warmly, but, um, but then when it, you know, when it comes to the, I almost think of it more as a soup, like, as opposed to like a big toggle, like bring in the authenticity, bring in sort of um, be relatable. Like we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses, right? Right. Like, um, and so I think, I think you can accomplish all of that, but it is, it's more of a mix, um, of, of gosh, just a bunch of qualities. I, I have so much empathy for leaders because I think when you step back from the role and you think about what does it actually take to perform, it's really quite substantial. I'm going to ask a question that I can't believe I'm putting into the English language, but can (laughs) you fake authenticity? There's so many ways I want to answer this you may be able to kind of pull the shade over some people's eyes by faking. Um, I don't actually think it will last for long. And I think most people have a pretty good BS radar. Other thing that I think of when you ask that question is um, this whole topic of emotional labor, right? Where we are to conform with the implicit rules of our workplace and our role we show emotions um we we work to display the correct emotions um so it it definitely makes me start thinking about that and the costs to really individual from having to do that sort of um, burdensome emotional labor one of the things i hear all the time from my clients is i'd be okay with the decision if i could understand why and not in a you know, a protected, redacted, this is just what we do type of way, but understanding the logic. Why, what does it have to do with strategy? I think oftentimes we do so much work in our heads and then we forget that not everybody's been along for that like cognitive ride, right? And so um, oftentimes leaders are aware of the why, they're aware of the backstory. They've done a lot of thinking about things and they simply forget to catch other people up 
on mm. what has been a lengthy and involved and rigorous thought process. Right. And so, you know, forgetting to explain the why and then just expecting yeah. people to fall in line oftentimes, you know, leads to <laughs> uh, less harmony. Well, I remember reading a story where a leader of a company, I think this was in somewhere in the Midwest, they had, it was a, a longstanding family business, but they basically used an, an economic downturn and wage cuts and it strengthened the culture and made people more loyal. And it went like this, you know, leader comes out and said, look, there are conditions beyond our control, economic downturn. And we know what that can spell, but I'm here to tell you emphatically, no one here is losing their job, first and foremost. Second of all, the way we're going to handle this is I'm going to slash my pay, you know, freeze all benefits, and then we're going to offer people who need more work, more work, and people who can afford to take a day off here, keep it. But at the bottom line, no one's losing their job. Well, what happened was people bonded more strongly because then they started trading hours. I know you have kids or you have no care yeah. um, and they just wove together. And even though they had less revenue, the values and the culture strengthened and people have stayed loyal to this company because the leadership showed vulnerability yeah. and strength of their convictions in the same, uh, same event. And it was profound. Yeah. And they also, you know, the leader demonstrated so much care and he also provided people with autonomy. Mm -hmm. You do, you know, you need it, keep it. If you right. have flexibility, great. Use it. You know, and autonomy is just so, so woven into all of our DNA, you know, yep. when it's, when it's taken away, oh. um, you know, just the outcomes are worse. To another big topic is, um, emotional labor. So I'd never actually seen those two concepts together. And so maybe we could just explain to people what is emotional labor? Yeah. So emotional labor um, is the work that we do to display what feel like the right emotions for our role mm -hmm. or our workplace. Okay. And so all workplaces, all roles have these like implicit feeling rules. And oftentimes they're so in the background that we don't really notice them, but they very much exist. And mm. so emotional labor is when those expectations um, are part of our role. We work to regulate our emotions internally. And then there is some sort of display. Sometimes all of these things can match, right? Like the expectations of the role match how you feel. So for example, leaders are expected to demonstrate empathy. Maybe you actually feel a lot of empathy for one of your team members. And so then you are able to actually display that emotion genuinely. Mm. Where things get dicey <laughs> is when how we actually feel and how we're expected to show up conflict. Um, and so emotional labor, I'm just going to like back up and give a little bit of history because I think it, it can be helpful for understanding it. It's it's like a weirdly complicated um, concept, <laughs> but the, the research around this began almost 50 years ago, and it was really concentrated on um, customer service roles. So mm. think about like service with a smile. Um, and I believe the first target of research was actually flight attendants 
So you're getting on the plane and the flight, welcome aboard, welcome aboard, like 300 times, right? They're fully expected in their roles to ensure that you're feeling good about coming onto that plane, Mm -hmm. right? And so there are roles like any customer service role um, where there is a lot of emotional labor, um, service with a smile, you can think that, um, where people are expected to almost be more nicer than natural. Um, or sometimes harsher than natural. Like think about the bill, a bill collector. Like he might actually not feel that that like that, but he needs to like come across as like harsh and you know. So it's um, it's really about working to display what those right emotions are. And the, all of the research around emotional labor really focused on this like customer service sector for decades. It wasn't until close to 2010. Um, that it started to get expanded into other domains and research around emotional labor and leadership began. Mm -hmm. There's still so much to be understood there, but what's led to some of my last articles on HBR is seeing how much more emotional labor my clients are doing right now than they have in the past. And so I started really like digging into it. And one of the things that I learned, which um, I think is surprising at first, is that um, the data shows that leaders do just as much emotional labor as people in the customer service sector who need to deliver service with a smile. But if you actually think about a leader's role, it starts to make sense. First off, they've got multiple, multiple interpersonal interactions like all day long. Then there's multiple stakeholder groups, right? You've got your team. Maybe you've got the board. You've got your executive peers. You have external stakeholders, right? Like you have all of these different groups and each of the display rules might be slightly different. Like how you need to show up with your team is a little bit different than how you show up at the board, right? So you are, you know, you're kind of (laughs) rejiggering how you show up Um, and Versus versus customer service people, where it's like when the when the cu- customer says they want something, you smile and you give it to them. When the customer says you're wrong, you say, "I'm sorry," <laughs> and you fix it. Right? These are very sort of like very scripted in general. For a leader, like it is constantly figuring it out in terms mm-hmm. of like how do I need to show up here to be most effective. Um, and sometimes there's a match between internal feelings and external, and sometimes there's not. So it seems, uh, I understand emotional labor, that it's something that you're expected to do and demonstrate that is implicit in you doing an excellent job. So being mm-hmm. aware of people's emotional state, how they want to receive information. How do you think about developing a real connection between your team individually versus a group setting? How does one optimize for that? Mm-hmm. I think you're right with your instinct that you can connect at a different level one-on-one than in a larger group. In a larger group, I always start to think about um it takes me into influence, right? Which is not just um, having an excellent sort of like communication style, but really thinking about um, what do I need to accomplish here, and what's the what's the what's the best way to do that? So, right. 
you know, if you need to inspire your team of however many people, 10 to 100, um, sort of go bravely in a new direction, right? Like you need to be able to like grab them in the heart, right? Like facts and figures will only get you so far. Um, And so I really think about um, once you are doing communications at a group level, you really need to be thinking like, what is what is the goal of this broader communication and how do I address not just the communication needs of all of these diverse people, but their interests, right? Like some people need to know the what, some people want the big why, some people need to know more the how, you know? And right. so there's just a lot of different channels of, um, of thinking about how to communicate most effectively. Yeah, I'll share a personal story from a yeah. decade ago. So I was starting a, a, a networking group that's now, you know, 700 people. And I had a chapter that I was running of about 40 people. And there was one sort of rogue member, always late, never really contributing. And I was sort of at my wits end with him. And uh, I, one last grasp, I said, let's just go out for a beer and I'll chat him up a bit and just see if I can get to the bottom of it. So yeah. 30, 40 minutes of tortured conversation it wasn't going anywhere. And then I asked him and he founded a pretty successful, um, you know, law firm. And I said, what inspired you to found this? And all of a sudden he lit up and mm-hmm. he talked about how he had been trained in one domain and had, had seen people being treated unfairly and wanted to change that narrative and founded that. And ever since that, he became one of the best members. And to this day, I consider him a friend and a superstar and went out of his way to be a part of the culture. And I thought, wow, it really decoded that through his why. And I thought that was the most useful, you know, investment of an hour because now it changed the dynamic in a group setting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately this is what people are pulled by. It's they're pulled by their why. They're pulled by a better vision of themselves and their and their lives and their work. People don't um, reject changing. They just reject like sort of getting changed, especially in directions that are not the ones they've set for themselves. We were giving a miniature playbook to a new manager do you think that they should spend a few weeks or months getting to know people one-on-one and really understanding what's driving them, their motivation, mm-hmm. and then using that information to weave together this team culture within a large organization? Yeah, absolutely. I think all the time that you spend, whether you're a new manager or a much more senior leader, one-on-one establishing strong relationships, it's... um it not only makes sort of every day more pleasant when you've got deep connections um, and sort of insight into the people you work with, but ultimately mm-hmm. you unlock better outcomes. One of the interesting things I found too in these relationships, the, the higher you ascend, the more that they matter. And I find that there's these interesting, um, as, as leaders sort of like ascend through the ranks where they've come from individual contributor, and then maybe they manage a small team of individual contributors, and then they become a manager of managers, and then, you know, and so on and so on. Um, there's always like a new mindset that's required for each of these transitions to unlock the behaviors that are going to be most successful. And one of them is connecting simply connecting with people is part of my job 
right? Like I don't need to, like, I'm not the workhorse. Um, like this is a legitimate way for me to spend my time. Yep. And it's almost like many of them need permission to do that because it feels like not work. It's funny you say that because Harry Kramer said that when in his role as CEO, 55,000 person organization. And he said, you know, I knew coming up as an individual contributor, um, I could work as hard as I could, but some people could do me times three in terms of workload. But yeah. when I got to a level where I was managing tens, hundreds, thousands of people, you know, those skills don't necessarily apply. It's not about grinding out the number and the right. data. It's about connecting people towards that greater purpose. And I always tell people, and I'm paraphrasing what Chip Heath said in an excellent book called Making Numbers Count that I recommend mm -hmm. everybody read. He's a Stanford professor, but he talks about the distinction of when you first start, you might be an analytical role. You might be a mm -hmm. financial analysis or running engineering models. It's models, it's ones and zeros. But yeah. as you sort of move up the chain, the questions become more complicated. Should we go there or not? What's the best strategy? How do we best approach this and and you need different skills to do that absolutely one of the most amazing things about evolving as a leader is um you're really evolving as a human and certainly every time you have more scope um it's going to require a like a shift in terms mm -hmm. of how you think about your time um breadth versus depth yep. um how you show up, the expectations that are that other people have for you, um, and what skill sets are are most necessary and impactful, and so it can just be this amazing learning journey. So for people who love to learn, it's like, gosh, it's just an invitation to a life of it. So we're going to pivot to our last big topic. If somebody wants to grow and scale and evolve. Is delegating just an, a part of it that we have to delegate or it's in our best interest to delegate? How do you think about that, Dina? Uh, yeah, I think as, if you want to lead a team, <laughs> it's, a, it's a must. It's an absolute must. Delegating is such an interesting thing, I think, because on the, mm. on the surface of it, it seems really simple, right? Like I think about, you know, the skills on my team and people's interests and then I think about the work and I do my best matching possible. And then I, I assign the work um, and, you know, discuss the work, arrive on like a desired outcome. And then, and I hand it off and, you know, check in and it's all going to be fine. So mechanically speaking, delegating is not complicated, right? Like it's just not, but it is incredibly difficult for people to do it sometimes at all, much less really well. And so it really leads you to this question, like what the heck is going on here? And it's because there is so much that is, um, that is happening kind of under the hood, so to speak, when it mm -hmm. comes to delegating. So for people to really truly develop into great delegators, they need to let go of exactly some of what you referred to, right? Like, okay, I know I can do it more quickly, right? But instead, I'm going to like invest in showing my son how to tie his shoe so that over the long run, you know, it pays multiple dividends. So I can do it more quickly tends to be an obstacle that gets in the way of of um, people who are, you know, having trouble with delegating. Another one is um, uh, my way is the right way. 
and right. feeling as though like there's only one way for this to get done and this has worked in the past and um that that can lead to struggles around delegating just right. general um needing to control stands in the way of delegating effectively yep. poor yep. levels of trust i mean it just worried about like god what value will i have if i delegate away this work like right. there is so much that's happening um that that makes delegating trickier than it seems like it should be. And right. so when you're thinking about like, gosh, well, because I've helped so many different leaders um, become more effective in terms of delegating, the first thing you need to understand is like, what is getting in the way here? Right. And only by understanding like what is getting in the way here, can you then sort of create an approach that allows that person to kind of move past that obstacle, which tends to be in their mind. Um, yep. And and actually succeed at at delegating. I remember hearing an early story about Subway sandwich chain in the late or early 1990s, where the founder was spending all day Friday signing checks to all the franchisees, and you know eventually they were like, "This is madness! Like you're yeah. you sh you shouldn't spend an eight hour day doing something that should be delegated to someone else." Even, I know you're trying to stay in touch. What's the issue there? So when you mm -hmm. encounter someone who's having trouble delegating, Dina, what's your process to understand what's in their way? And then and then you frame up your, your solution through that lens. So the approach in general, I actually just worked with a founder who, you know, she had created a very successful company, uh, strong PE backing, several hundred people. She would work until two, three in the morning, like taking on so many things that were really for other people to own. And so there's so many like habits we can fall into, like, right. you know, habits of behavior, habits of emotion, habits of thinking yep. and so on. And so, you know, when I was working with her, the approach started with like understanding, like what, what was her vision of leadership? What did she really want? You know, so that we could, I'm thinking to myself, like, only if she wants something will we be able to make any progress, right? And so I'm always thinking about like, what is it that you want to have? Like three to five years from now, what's the impact you want to have? What's your vision of your company? What's your vision of your leadership? So that we can sort of attach the hard work of changing oneself to something that really, really matters, sort of per our conversation not too long ago. Um, then we look at, okay, well, what's, what's getting in the way of you offloading some of this work? Um, and she was actually one of the inspirations for that article around um, stop feeling guilty about delegating. That was the main thing for her was a feeling so guilty when she knew her team was already struggling of putting more work on their mm -hmm. plates, right? right? She had also just gotten into a habit of... Um, doing everything right? right like um she's scrappy resourceful just kind of like get it get it done um and so there was that happening and then um and then she was just sort of like unsure of even how to like how do I how do I start going about this right mm -hmm. um and so once we unpacked that like guilt was one of the major things the habits and I collected um, feedback for her and, and what she learned through this feedback, which for leaders who have not received 360 feedback, high quality 360 feedback, I highly recommend you do it because understanding your impact on other people is so paramount to your success. 
But yeah. one of the things that she learned is, um, you know, her team felt completely disempowered because she mm. kept, like she was trying to protect them. And meanwhile, yep. they felt disempowered. They felt their growth was stymied. They didn't feel trusted. They worried right. about her um, right. because they knew she got like just zero sleep. And right. like she was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I was just trying to help. Right. Yes. And so it's like, there's a moment of reckoning when you realize, oh God, all my best intentions, right? Um, but that feedback can be very helpful in terms of the case for change, right? And so she was like, I'm all over this. And and like, we just buckled in and like most change, um, we just take small steps, right? Because if you try to do something where you're completely overfaced, you're like, oh my God, it's so stressful. I can't possibly give up that whole project. Well, then right. you won't, right? So we started like little little chunks here and there. And, um, you know, and she started to grow her confidence, not just in the skill set, but in the abilities of people. And then, you know, simultaneously, we were running like little sort of thought experiments, you know, like uh, to help her develop new, we all have assumptions, right? And we, we, we act as though our assumptions about the world and people and situations are true. And, uh, it's just the way we get through most days. But lots of times those assumptions are not entirely right or they're only partially right or they're true with somebody and not with somebody else. And we need to really like uh, reveal those assumptions and then question them. And so anyhow, there's just, uh, we started running little thought experiments to see like how true are some of the assumptions I hold. And she learned, you know, some of them, some of them were just not right. Um, yeah. And that allowed her to rejigger her mindset. Well, I love that. And I'm sure it had an immediate impact on team morale and productivity mm -hmm. and all of that. It shows you the two belief systems. I'm protecting you and they're saying she doesn't trust us. And I love in your article uh, called Stop Feeling Guilty About Delegating, one was about reframing. And I'm just going to paraphrase, but consider rather than burdening your team, you're giving them a chance to grow. Instead of believing that not delegating will promote team happiness, understand that people love feeling trusted and allow greater contributions, more meaningful work, it boosts engagement. And so immediately when I read that, I thought, you know, I'm guilty of some of this as well. And what I think about is I am protecting people, but forgetting that you could delegate and these will show up as prizes to people. Mm -hmm. Really that reframe, Dina, is a powerful tool. Yeah. And I honestly think the leaders can, there's a lot of ways to get at delegating and um, empowering your team. But one is simply like in your one-on-one -on -one check ins ask each team member repeatedly, where do you need my help? And that's a great question. That's an important question. Where do you need me to get more involved? Right. Another question is, where am I more involved than you either want or need me to be? Right. Um, because people tend to want to, you know, that we have internal drives. Like we, we want to master, we want to learn, we want to grow. Um, right. And just having that conversation, like, where am I too involved? You may find that people are like, I want, I want to own this. Let me drive it. Right. right. And how wonderful for you too. <laughs> Oftentimes I meet such wonderful people and they're bright and driven and, and hardworking and all the things, but they feel shy about self-promotion mm -hmm. at work because they don't want to be seen as, you know, selfish or self-centered or not being a team player, right? It's a delicate balance. Do you have any tips for how people can promote their ideas at work 
but not come across in an unlikable way and not warm, as you said, one of those mm. qualities we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I run across this all the time too. Um, people who feel like, I don't want to be like that guy, right? Mm. And they'll, right? because there's always people in offices who gladly toot their own horn and they are this extreme version of it, right? And right. what I, one of the things I point out to my clients, like the fact that you are even concerned about this tells me you could never be that person. So right. let's not just think in terms of black and white, like I either don't self-promote or I do and I'm that, right? There are, you can think of it as a dial. And inevitably the people who are um, disinclined or worried about doing it can certainly turn up their dial a little bit without becoming that sort of like blowhard, like noxious person in the office. When I think about this and how people can do this in ways that um, are effective, the first thing I like to think about is the notion that, you know, work hard and people, whatever, it'll all pay off. It's just a fallacy. Um, you know, you do actually need to point out um, some of your accomplishments and, and, achievements for other people to even know that they've happened. Mm -hmm. um, it is actually good for other people to know that. This is like another flipping of the script, right? Like if people don't know what you are capable of and what you are achieving, how can your boss or your company put all that you bring to the table to its best use? You're limiting others in terms of accessing your strengths and your skills and all that you offer. And so I think that it's actually for other people that we, <laughs> that we should self-promote. And the, the fact is, you know, other people won't notice unless we point it out. That said, you know, stick, stick to the facts. Um, this can be, this can be helpful rather than saying, well, I just did the most phenomenal job, right? right. Use, use, use data. It's much more comfortable to communicate with data around things like this. So work to collect data and speak in terms of outcomes and data. I think another thing that can be very powerful is to use, to use the word we. So when you have collaborated with other people, when your team has contributed, lift, lift everybody, right? right. It is first off, it, it acknowledges and recognizes other contributions. There's so little we do truly all by ourselves. Um, right. and, and that recognition is so important for, for other people, but it also makes it more comfortable for you to highlight things because you're not putting just yourself, um, in, into that spotlight. So those are two things just sort of off the top of my head that I'd yeah. recommend. I love it. So sharing data, speaking to outcomes, as well as using we to have inclusive language. Yeah. And, you know, there's another benefit that I, I read in an article about just reducing work overwhelm when people keep assigning people other tasks to actually put it down on a piece of paper, an app, write down all the projects you're working on, because not only this dispassionate way of, of showing people what you're doing is actually a way to have them reprioritize if they keep loading your plate up, you can just go back and say, as you know, look at the whiteboard or look at this document, here's the five things I'm working on, the business outcomes, how we're progressing. And it's a gentle reminder in a dispassionate way to say like, this is serving the greater goal goals and here's what I'm working on. And they can say, wow, they, that person has a lot on their plate. They're really pushing the, the rock forward. Good job. Yeah. And not, not to be too full circle, but it brings me back to 
one of the things that you mentioned right at the beginning about like, raise your hand, be the note taker or whatever. Um, You know, gosh, there's all the priorities that have been sort of handed to you. But then there are these other places, right, where you're doing work that might be invisible or unnoticed. Um, It's helpful to point that out, too. So my two final questions are what one thing would you leave people with? And then if you'd want to share, you know, a personal story or a challenge of growth that you've experienced in your career. So yes. those are the two. You can take one, both or neither. I'll try to hit them both. I'll try to hit okay. them both. Um, so one of the most profound lessons that I experienced um, sort of earlier in uh, in my leadership journey was um, <laughs> finding out um, via an exit interview, unfortunately, that a direct report had found me scary. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I can tell you that I have never in my life thought of myself as a scary person to, to this day, like that word scary, like it, it breaks my heart that her experience of me was somehow that it, it, it created some level of fear in her. But what I took away from that and what I realized is um, this fundamental um, need to think not just about like our intent, but the impact. So. Um, you know, that was my impact on her. It was never my intent. And oftentimes there can be a gap between those two things. And this is where, again, like I, this is not my final point for, for leaders, the takeaway, but I really strongly feel that leaders need high quality feedback because um, I had no idea that that's how I was getting experienced by this one person. And had I known that I could have worked to change it. And so getting feedback in terms of your impact on others is so important so that you can align your intent with, with that or align your impact with your intent. Um, and, and it's just fundamental to your success. So I wish I'd, I wish I'd found that out like months and months and months in advance. And I could have, maybe this wasn't the place for her, but I could have um, at least left her with a better experience. Uh, And then the, the, thing I would leave leaders with from all of this is have self-compassion. Um, you are in, um, it's a, leadership is just an absolutely demanding role and the impact that you can have is so profound. It can be really beautiful and it is, it's not an easy journey. Um, there are so many different expectations on you. Um, the learning curve is always steep. The world is uncertain and fast changing. And it's just, um, it's such a privilege. And it's also a lot of responsibility and just hold, hold yourself gently um, through the process. Yeah, I love it. There's two just pearls of wisdom there with the feedback. I think you're allowing other people to make a contribution to you in a way that will deepen everyone's impact. And it's a beautiful thing to really allow for it. And it's something that everyone can, can do. And then I love the self-compassion piece because it's, it is about caring for yourself and being nice to yourself. I believe that everyone's job is hard. The parable of this story is just soften your heart a bit to let understand other people's position, including the people who are leading you and those you're leading, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. 
All right. Well, Dina Denham Smith, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I cannot wait to read your new book, tons of articles online. What's the best way for people to reach out to you to see what you're doing? Where should people go to find more about you and your work, Dina? Uh, thank you. Uh, my website, um, which you, you spelled out earlier, it's dinadsmith.com. Um, I'd love if you joined me um, on LinkedIn. So every day I curate and put out what feels to me to be very high quality content for um, especially targeted towards leaders because that's that's my population and sort of a big soft spot in my heart. I think it's all information that can be useful for just navigating today's world of work. Well, thank you so much for being on Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast, and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks, Dina. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I urge you to check out influencedna.co and find the podcast page where you can find show notes, links to the guests, extra resources, and a whole lot more. Also, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and make sure to sign up for our mailing list. If you have questions about the show or comments about how we can improve it, drop us a line. I will read every single message. That's podcast at influencedna.co. If you like what you heard, I'd say leave us a five-star review. And if you hated what you heard, leave us a six-star review. Either way, we're not stopping. See you on the next show.